Good morning, and welcome to the Stories online campus. Wherever you are in the world, you're here right now. You're part of the story, and I'm honored that you're here. My name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor of the story. We've got a lot going on in our church right now. As you can see, I am preaching today's message for our online campus from our brand new in-person campus here in the Museum District in Houston, Texas. If you're ever in town on a Sunday morning, come by and see us at 4910 Montrose Boulevard. Um, big, big things are happening in the life of the Story Church. And it's all God, and we just we are amazed by what he has done with our church and what he continues to do. Got some great news for you uh, online campus people, and this has uh, been a while in the making now. The, the disruption of the transition of the past year caused us to move from a live streaming of our um, uh, Sunday services uh, for our online campus to a pre-recorded version of that, which has been great, and our team has pulled together and done an amazing job with the pre-recordings. But very soon, in just a matter of a few weeks, by February 20th, our target date is, uh, is to move our Sunday online services back to a live streaming of our services happening here in our new campus. So, very excited about that. I think the live experience makes for a, a more meaningful online worship experience, and, and I hope you all feel the same way, and I'm really looking forward to that. All right, today's message is, uh, well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, it's, gonna, it, it's not easy to talk about today's topic. We're in part two of three in this series. Uh, the series is called The Questions Jesus Asked. We know that Jesus was a big fan of questions. Um, we think of him as an answer man, but he asked 307 questions in the four Gospels, and those are just the ones they wrote down. Who knows how many more he asked that, uh, that uh, you know, were off the record, so to speak. But he loved getting people to think by asking questions. And, and a lot of the questions Jesus asked were about what you would expect Jesus to ask. They're on brand. Like the question last week, pretty much on brand. Jesus asked, why are you so afraid? We know that Jesus wants to pull people out of fear and, and fill people with faith. So he says, why, why are you so afraid? That makes sense. But once in a while, you come across a question that Jesus asked that it feels a little bit like stepping on a rake in, in the yard. It's unexpected. It, it hits you in the face, and it, it hurts a little bit, and, and you just don't see it coming. And today's question is one of those for sure. The, the question of the day, part two of this series on the questions Jesus asked is, how will you escape hell? How will you escape hell? Now, uh, to, to most people, this just doesn't sound like Jesus. This sounds like Old Testament God, or this sounds like the Southern Baptist preacher from your hometown who's always scaring his congregation into, into heaven, right? Uh, trying to scare them out of hell, literally scare the hell out of them and, and save their souls by way of fear. This just seems a little bit out of character for many people that think they know who Jesus was. We think of him as more of a glass half full kind of guy. We think of Jesus as kind of a, a sunny side up uh, optimist. Um, who'd much rather talk about heaven than hell. But Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than everyone else in the Bible combined. And he wasn't sugarcoating it either. Jesus, most of what we know to be true about hell comes straight from Jesus. So, uh, so things like hell being an eternal reality or hell being a, an actual place that God has created for the devil and his angels, Jesus said. 
or hell being a place that you can be thrown into as punishment for your sin. Hell being a miserable place of unquenchable fire where there are tears and gnashing of teeth. Hell being this, this place that is, that is uh, full of misery and darkness. He calls it the outer darkness. That's Jesus talking about hell, and he talks about hell in the Gospels all the time. And he talked about it in terms of it being eternal. And in today's passage from Matthew 23, this is what Jesus said, very simply, Matthew 23, verse 33, Jesus said in the middle of a sermon, you snakes, he said, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? You vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell, Jesus asked. Now, in the spirit of total transparency here, it should be said that when he said this line, when he asked this question, he wasn't speaking to the general population in mass. He was speaking to guys like me. And so in some ways, I've got good news for most of you. It would seem you're off the hook here, but... You know that's, that's not the whole story. I'll get to the rest in a minute. But Jesus certainly had this notion that, um, that religious leaders and preachers and priests, men who are, um, who are given the authority to teach others about God and to lead them into the truth of God and his word, that we bear some extra accountability or responsibility for what we do and say and how we lead the flocks of God, right? And, uh, and so it is true that people who take on that authority will have an added layer of accountability in eternity. That cannot be escaped, um, and that's not necessarily great news for people <laughs> like me. I tread lightly with this and uh, with fear and trembling, right? But but the idea here is that, that God might, might grade on a curve a little bit. People that are given great power are held to a great accountability, responsibility. You know, Spider-Man was right and all of that. And, and so what this means is a preacher who misleads people faces more accountability than your favorite barista at your favorite coffee shop who, as he prepares your caramel macchiatos, says maybe... God is a computer programmer and we're just a simulation or like, like it spouts off these heresies. Like I, we're, guys like me are going to have very different conversations at the throne of Jesus than the baristas of the world will. And what's interesting about this is I think this is something we can all agree on. Christians and non-Christians alike can agree with Jesus that people in positions of power should be held to a higher standard. How else do we explain the extra layer of outrage we all feel universally as human beings when a lawmaker or a law enforcer, a police officer breaks the law brazenly? Like that upsets us more than when an average person does. Or when a politician who hands down some draconian measures, you know, to, uh, to stop the, the cases of COVID from spreading, and then they are photographed out and about at some fancy restaurant with their rich friends and lobbyists not wearing masks or anything, like that infuriates us, regardless of whether you go to church or not. Or when a priest or a pastor takes advantage of a vulnerable member of their community like a child, that adds a, another layer of, uh, of 
grief and anger and outrage on the part of those, uh, the rest of us, right? We, we are outraged when someone takes advantage of others and abuse, uh, they abuse their power in this way. And, and it's funny sometimes, you'll hear non-religious people say, well, um, I hope they burn in hell for what they've done. Or uh, people will say, the hottest place in hell is reserved for X, right, whoever. And so there's some place of agreement here about hell and justice and power and responsibility that we can all find uh, with Jesus in common ground. Now, some people should have hell to pay, and we all can uh, probably get our hearts around that. And so on the one hand, this seems like it's good news for uh, people that aren't in positions of great power, and it's bad news for people that do wield power. But when it comes to Christianity and the Christian faith, there's more to be said, because Christians also believe that Jesus essentially made the priesthood obsolete. And so there's no longer any need in the Christian worldview for middlemen to take your prayers and petitions to God on your behalf. There's no need for any priestly class to, you know, tell you what God really thinks. We have already seen the revelation of the fullness of God in Jesus, and that revelation is fully accessible to every one of us. And so we all have this access to this power to be found in Christ. And so in that way, um, we are all accountable to God for our own actions. So the question then becomes, how will we, all of us, escape being condemned to hell for the things that we have done? And you can see how speaking on this subject is an uphill climb. Nobody wants to talk about hell. Nobody wants to hear their preacher talk about hell. You know, talking about heaven is way easier. More than half of all Americans today, I'm sorry, more than three-fourths of all Americans today believe in heaven. But less than half of all Americans today believe in hell, which is, well, that's an interesting fact in and of itself. And increasingly, there are more and more Christians who struggle with hell. They struggle with the idea of hell. More and more Christians struggle to reconcile the notion of a loving God with this notion that a loving God could ever send someone to hell, much less billions and billions of people who didn't say they were sorry in time or in the right way or in the right church. And to condemn those people to eternal conscious torment is it's unimaginable for someone who conceives of God as a God of love. Now, um, the very popular podcaster and philosopher Sam Harris once debated Christian thinker um, William Lane Craig at Notre Dame University, and he summed up uh, pretty succinctly, I think, the emotional response to the idea of a loving God and an eternal hell. And check out this argument. It takes him one minute to articulate it. Okay. So God created the cultural isolation of the Hindus. Okay. He engineered the circumstance of their deaths in ignorance of revelation, and then he created the penalty for this ignorance which is an eternity of conscious torment in fire. Okay, on the other hand, on Dr. Craig's account, your run-of-the-mill serial killer in America, okay, who, who spent his life raping and torturing children, need only come to God, come to Jesus on death row, and after a final meal of fried chicken, he's going to spend an eternity in heaven after death. One thing should be crystal clear to you. 
this vision of life has absolutely nothing to do with moral accountability. Okay, so Sam Harris's point here is that a God who would condemn so many to uh, eternal hell must be morally inferior to us. So no one should worship such a God. Even if that God exists, he would not be worthy of our worship because he's morally inferior. And, and we should at least re require that a God we worship be a better person than us that he be more loving, more patient, less violent than us. And so if we have a God who's condemning people, most people even, you know, by some standards of, uh, of Christian thought, to hell, then how do we say that this God is a better person than the average person you know, or maybe a better person than you? Now, there seems to be um, an important cor correlation to pay attention to here between um, a viewpoint like the one Sam Harris has articulated between his perspective and the relative privilege, comfort, and power that um, the person espousing that perspective has enjoyed. In other words, the more comfortable your life is or has been, the less struggle that you've faced, the more power and privilege that you've enjoyed in this life, the less likely you are to believe in hell or to accept it as a reality. This seems to be a truism, like um, it's, it's hard to find people where suffering is a daily present reality. It's hard to find people uh, who reject the idea of divine justice in eternity. But such folks are, are everywhere in, in our privileged part of the world. And increasingly so, the longer that we are comfortable, the fewer uh, people among us who believe uh, in, in hell as a reality. Comfort seems to make us soft about justice. Comfort seems to lead people to believe in this illusion that we don't need this archaic notion of justice, divine justice in the hereafter. We don't need eternal justice. We human beings are smart enough to have justice systems that work here and now. And so we can do justice without God and, and, you know, that's all we really need. Now, that seems like a reasonable enough assertion, but there are, and always have been, and presumably always will be, places in the world where human justice falls short. There are places where real justice is elusive, where the police are the bad guys. There are places in this world where the courts and judges are corrupt. There are places... Where, um, where, where there's no one to call, and the governments aren't on your side. And in such places, the facade of human justice is laid bare, and it is revealed to be fraudulent. But comfort can convince you that this world doesn't really need divine justice, but ask anyone who's ever watched their family be killed in front of them by officials they should be able to trust, or any parents who've had their kids kidnapped at school by roving bands of warlords and gangs as happens in parts of the world, or ask anyone who's ever been assaulted or raped without any remedy to speak of, ask anyone who's experienced any measure of real suffering on the part of those who should look out for them and if you ask them if hell is compatible with a loving God, you won't hear them wondering why God can't just be nice like us, like us humans, why we can't just depend on human institutions and the human heart 
to exact justice on behalf of the hurting. Miroslav Volf is a professor of theology at Yale University. He's also a Christian who grew up in war-torn Croatia during uh, the, the fall of the Soviet uh, Empire and uh, the Soviet Union. In his book called uh, Exclusion and Embrace, uh, Volf takes Christians who want to divorce themselves from hell to task. And this is what he wrote. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think, of nothing of in, think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. Persuaded, presumably, that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges, and so violence thrives. Secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword, if you are inclined to dismiss hell, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Well, that's a quote. <laughs> that really uh, says a lot, and Christians would do well to listen, um, especially Christians who struggle with or, or have, have completely uh, forgotten or forsaken the notion of, of hell as it's presented in the Bible. And I know that it's well-meaning. It's not like you're trying to be a sinister person or a bad Christian when you say, I'm not so sure about hell. I know most people who struggle with hell do so because of their belief that God is love. And so I want to I flesh that out a little bit before we close today. I want to make clear that Christians don't believe in hell in spite of the fact that God is love. We believe in hell because of the fact that God is love. And because he is love, we believe God must also be just when it comes to sin, which is a, the Christian understanding of a crime, a crime against the law of God. And to understand hell and how Christians really think of it, how Jesus really thought of it when he walked the earth, you have to understand how sin works on us and the danger that it poses to us all. And once you understand the, the real danger that sin poses to us all, you'll see why it's so important that Christians and churches never stop teaching people about the reality that is hell. And, and I know a lot of times we, we think that churches that talk the least about hell are the most loving, and churches that talk the most about hell are the least loving, and I would challenge that assertion. Watch out if you're a part of a church that rarely or never talks about hell as a reality because Jesus talked about it so much and it is an essential part of understanding God's plan to save us all. Now sin begins in the, in, in the Bible in Genesis 
three. So last week we went back to Genesis to the beginning as we started our new campus and all that. We're going to do the same right now. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve took that forbidden fruit, um, they fractured their perfect relationship, their communion with God. They went their own way. Um, and the side effects of that one act were immediate. The side effects of sin were rapid onset. Uh, the, the devil in, in Genesis 3 is disguised as a snake, and he comes to Adam and Eve to tempt them, and he deceived them. They took the fruit and ate it, and then this is what happened. Genesis 3, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Now pay attention to what happens immediately after sin entered the picture. The eyes of both were opened. They realized they were naked. They'd been naked all along, naked with God, and they were cool with it, naked with each other. They were fine with it. But suddenly being naked was a problem once sin entered the picture. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And skip with me to verse 11. And then Adam, uh, I'm sorry, then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam said, the woman, <laughs> so pay attention, Adam's first reaction, just to pass that buck, baby, and men, we've been doing it ever since. The woman, the woman you gave, and so not only is the woman the problem, but God is the problem. The woman you gave me, <laughs> so she's to blame and you're to blame, I'm not to blame for what I've done. The woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it, so what? <laughs> and then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me. The devil made me do it, which is another thing we say a lot when we get ourselves in trouble. So the effects of sin were immediate and severe and familiar. Familiar to us all. The moment they sinned, Adam and Eve ran from God they hid from God. They covered their tracks and covered themselves from God. They lied to God. And for the first time in their lives, they were separated from God. And that, that little point there is, is the most important of all. Because separation from God is the most succinct biblical definition of hell uh, throughout the scriptures. Hell, if you really want to know what hell is, it's just a separation from God. And it's not God who separates himself from us. It's we who choose to self-isolate from God. We self-impose the separation from God. To me, when I study the actions of Adam and Eve just in this one little passage, it reminds me a lot, not only of how sin has worked in my life over time, but it reminds me of how, how, how addiction works in the lives of the addicts that I've loved in the past. So I've always, addicts have always been drawn to me as, as a friend or as a confidant, as someone they can talk to without fear of judgment. I've, some of my best friends have been wrapped up in various kinds of, of addictions, and I've shared about an addiction of my own in the past and, and uh, recovery from it. But the way addiction works, if you've ever been an addict or you are now an addict or, um, or you've cared for one, is it drives the addict into hiding. It drives the user into isolation. The user runs from accountability and hides 
from accountability. The people who love the user best are, are shunned and shut out because they are the ones who could potentially stand in the way of that attachment, that addiction, that substance that, that, that the addict is living for. And this all happens so rapidly, and, and it can be su- such, a, uh, such a confusing thing to, to try and love a, an addict well, because you never know if what they're telling you is the truth. It's just one deception after another, and, and eventually the addict doesn't even know what's true at all. He's just living in the lie as though it is the truth. And, and of course, the, the real problem with addiction is what's dictated by the law of diminishing returns, which is what the amount of whatever substance you're on that satisfied you yesterday no longer satisfies you. You need more today, and you'll need more tomorrow. And the Christian view of sin is not unlike what happens with addiction. And in in this way, understanding how addiction works can kind of be a, a, a subtle kind of grace. Because when you understand how addiction works, you understand how sin works on us all in the same way. Sin drives us into hiding, Sin causes us to isolate from God and each other. Sin causes us to shirk responsibilities and pass the buck of blame to someone else. Sin causes us to, to, to self-condemn in our shame. Sin causes us to fall prey to the law of diminishing returns. Whatever you wanted yesterday isn't enough anymore. What is the real problem of sin? It's wanting more, always wanting more, never having enough. And when Christians talk about hell, all we're really talking about is that reality being a slave to sin, but forever. If the law of diminishing returns makes, can make your life a living hell in these 60, 70, 80 years God gives you in this life, what does that become in eternity? How, how isolating, how separate from God, how dark, how torturous would that existence be? That's the warning that Jesus is giving again and again when he talks about the problem of hell. And that's the problem with sin. It, it works like an addiction. It, it is, a, it is a, like we, think of, we often think of God as this angry man in the sky who's like condemning us. Like, you sinners, go to hell. Like, he's ain't like, Rawr. Like, that's how people imagine Christians thinking about God. That's not it at all. It is, to the contrary, an act of self-condemnation. Look at Titus 3 and Romans 2 and other passages like them. You condemn yourself when you give yourself over to sin. That's how it works. Like an addiction. Well, one of the brilliant things about the 12-step recovery process, which has been the saving grace to hundreds of, th- hundreds of millions of people since its inception, and I've, I've looked at it up close. I've been to several meetings with friends, open meetings and things like that, and I've seen it. I've read the big book several times over, uh, the 12 steps. The first step, of course, is admitting that you are powerless over this addiction, that you are that you are wrapped up in. The second step is acknowledging that um, a higher power can restore you. You are powerless, but a higher power can restore you. And of course, those are vague terms, but as Christians, we, we believe that that higher power has a name and has been revealed in his fullness. 
the fullness of God revealed in Jesus Christ, who came to earth not to condemn the world to hell, who came to earth not to be some self-righteous guru who floated above the skies and taught us these eternal truths. No, he came to die, to pay the consequences of my sin and yours so that we might know how loved we really are. And in this way, we get the message loud and clear that God isn't, isn't excited or, or, or in a rush to send anyone to hell. The Bible says again and again that it is God's will that all would be saved. Jesus said that I've, I have come, the Son of God has come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. For God so loved the world, he said. So, when we talk about hell, we're not talking about some kind of an exclusive or hate-filled diatribe. We're talking about the essence of love laid bare on the cross, made available to all people. But we know that love requires ultimate freedom as well. And although it is not God's will that anyone should perish for eternity, it is a possibility for all of us because he gives us the agency to choose for ourselves, whether to receive his love and to surrender to it or to go our own way. Oscar Wilde, who is this famous um, writer, obviously, but also a, kind of a hedonist and an atheist, said, hell is just yourself. <laughs> hell is yourself. And toward the end of his life, he lived in this tormented place because of the things that he had done. And he realized that hell was when it's just yourself. It's all about you. And when it's only about you, yourself is always alone. Separate from God. Separate from love. But there is one higher power who can restore us. We may feel powerless in the face of our sin and our addictions, but there is one who can restore us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. So the answer to the question today, how will you escape being condemned to hell is, frankly, bluntly, you can't escape. You can't escape. You are powerless. You can't escape being condemned to hell because all of us are sinners that fall short of the glory of God. You can't escape, but you can be rescued. You can be rescued by the one whose arms are reach wide enough to rescue us all, regardless of your religious background or, or particular beliefs throughout your life or things you've done wrong, you can be rescued from the pit of hell and received into God's arms in glory by no doing of your own, but simply by the free gift of God and his grace. Look, Christians... We're not supposed to be scared into heaven. You know, we're not, we're not supposed to receive Jesus because we're afraid of, of hell. We receive Jesus and the salvation he gives us because this 
gift of joy and freedom is free. We don't have to behave to, to get it. And it is out of a response to that free gift, that undeserved gift that I've never done anything to earn, that we are moved to be transformed by his spirit, that we're moved to make a change. Listen, if you've ever been put off by Christians that harp on hell, I understand. Some Christians enjoy talking about hell way too much. And it can get hateful and fear-based. That's not the point. The point of talking about hell is just to offer some warning signs, some guardrails for the life that you're living, and to really ask yourself, who's at the center of your life? Who are you worshiping and why? What are you attaching yourself to? And have you, have you received the rescue of Jesus that's offered to you freely? Some of you are watching now and you feel completely unworthy, like I'm not really talking to you, I'm talking to the other people in the room with you because you've done things or you feel a certain way about yourself that is irredeemable. Not so. Jesus' love reaches far beyond your sin. He's capable and willing and ready to rescue you now if you just say, Jesus, I receive you. I need you. I'm powerless. Restore me. A simple prayer. You can pray it with me right now. Let's pray together. Lord, we are left to our own devices, powerless and helpless in the face of sin and the things we attach ourselves to. And we understand that's why, Jesus, you came and, and raised the warning flags about hell and the potential outcome of, of our addictions uh, unchecked for eternity. Lord, we want you. We want your salvation. We want your freedom. We want your joy. I'm praying right now with those especially who feel alienated from that possibility because of some shame of their past or their present. Lord, there are people tuning in right now who feel like um, too dirty, too sinful, too angry, too cynical. Lord, remind us right now there's, there's no sin too great that you can't redeem. There's no sin too great that you haven't already forgiven on the cross and help us to trust in what the cross really means. So for those who are wondering if grace is for them, I pray right now, Lord, we surrender. Come into our hearts Rearrange our priorities, restore us to your purity and holiness, and help us to receive this gift of relationship with you. That is all grace. It's all your doing. All we have to do is receive it. We thank you and we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.